Well, there are a couple miracles that Jesus performed that are in all of the Gospels. You know, one of them is the big miracle of the resurrection. That's, of course, listed in all of the Gospels. But the other miracle that's listed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they, rec- they all record that miracle from Christ. And John records that after Jesus performed that miracle, that there was this real desire from the multitudes to force Jesus to become their king. You know, they'd been waiting because of all these promises in the Old Testament. They'd been waiting for a messianic king to come to sit on David's throne permanently and to drive out all of the enemies of Israel. So in their setting, as the Romans had occupied them and as they were under Roman rule, they were really waiting for that messianic figure to come. And John the Baptist had come around and he was preaching and everybody was coming out to him and he said that he was preparing the way of the Lord. He was preparing the way for the Messiah. He was, he was preparing people's hearts. So there was this anticipation and something about that miracle when Jesus fed the 5,000, it just kind of tipped the population in that direction. Jesus is that king. We want him to be that king. It's time for him to finally take his place as that king. And so they wanted to make him king uh, by force. Jesus, of course, will someday be that kind of king, Uh, but not in his first coming, in his second coming. And so Jesus did, at that point, what Jesus would do whenever he wanted to thin the crowds a little bit and become less popular. He taught. (laughs) That's what he did. Anytime Jesus wanted to become less popular, he'd open up his mouth and he'd start teaching. And he started telling them, I'm the true bread that comes down from heaven. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can have no part with me taught different things like that. And some people just had no idea what he was talking about. Some of the things he said were very hard for them. And it tells us at the end of John, John chapter six, that many people who previously identified themselves as his disciples departed from him, turned back from him and no longer walked with him at that particular moment after all of this teaching. And then this is what it says in John chapter six, verse 67. It says, so Jesus said to the 12, Do you want to go away as well? What a question. From Jesus to his 12 disciples, do you want to leave as well? All these other people have left. They couldn't handle my teaching. They couldn't handle the requirements of following me. Do you want to leave me as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You know, these men had discovered something beautiful about Jesus. They were in awe of Jesus. They wanted to follow Jesus and found something in him that was worth devoting their lives to. Today, as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 10, uh, this is one of those chapters where we see some beautiful elements in David's life. In chapter 11 next week, we'll see a terrible element in David's life, but today we see a beautiful, some beautiful elements in David's life, and these are things that caused his servants, I think, to be in awe of him and to serve him more effectively and help us to look past David to Jesus, who does these things that we'll see David do better than David did, 
to a greater degree than David did so that we might serve our Lord in a better way than David's servants served him. Now, just to remind you of the context of where we're at here in chapter 10, David is the king of Israel at this point, and his kingdom is expanding. Remember, last week we saw, and I reminded you, that God had made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and on down through the line, and David was part of that promise, that God would give the promised land to the people of Israel from the Nile River all the way to the Euphrates. They hadn't yet lived in that, though. They hadn't yet taken that territory, and so as these different nations were attacking David and the people of Israel, he was taking that ground. He was winning victories, and they were getting up to the Euphrates and heading down towards Egypt. They were beginning to expand their territory to be uh, more in line with what God had promised to the people of Israel. And so God is giving David all kinds of success at this point. His kingdom is expanding. But to the east of Israel, on the other side of the Jordan River, the people of Ammon lived and dwelt, the Ammonite people. The Ammonite people were related to Abraham's nephew named Lot. If you've read the book of Genesis, you've read about Lot. And the Ammonite people came from Lot. They were descendants of Lot. And when the people of Israel went into the promised land, God through Moses, told the people of Israel, don't touch the Ammonites. Don't touch their land. It belongs to them. Their descendants of Lot, that's their land. You don't touch it. It's, it's theirs. You leave them alone. All right, so when Saul became king, by that time, the Ammonites, though Israel had left them alone, the Ammonites were not leaving Israel alone. And they had a king named Nahash, who was persecuting Judah. And when Saul became king, he rose up and his first military victory that kind of put him on the scene was defeating Nahash and the Ammonite people, just kind of driving them back to their territory. All right. So that's just a little bit of history to give you the backdrop of where we're at uh, here in verse one. So let's read together. Second Samuel chapter 10, verse one, it says after this, so after this unbroken success, all these victories, the king of the Ammonites died. It's probably the same guy that Saul had defeated and suppressed. His name is Nahash. We'll see him in a moment. Same guy more than likely, but years later, you know, maybe four or five decades later. So he was a younger man when Saul defeated him. He's an older man now. He finally dies. And it says in verse one, and Hanun, his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David's heart is, you know, I'm not going to attack the Ammonites. Uh, Nahash was peaceful ever since Saul put him down. They were peaceful with us. They were loyal to, to us. He's been loyal to me. Some people actually think when, that when David was on the run from Saul, that Nahash gave David sanctuary. And so maybe that's what David is saying, even when he says, he was loyal to me, I'm going to be loyal to him. So David, verse 2, sent his servants to console him, that's Hanun, console him, concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. So David, you know, he's sent now his servants over to the new king, the young king, Hanun, to comfort him because his dad died. All right, now we need to 
see what happens next just to get the idea for this first point I want to give to you. It says, but verse three, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their Lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. And when it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Okay, first things first. Let's deal with this story. <laughs> the first thing I want you to see before we get into what Hanun did to David's messengers is I just want you to notice something beautiful about David's character in that he desired to bring consolation to this unbelieving man. And that's really what Hanun is, this Ammonite king. He wanted to bring consolation. You guys can take the verses off during this time. He wanted to bring consolation to this Ammonite king. David cared about this young man and the pain that he was going through in his life uh, at this time. He wanted to bring that consolation. Now, I hope I'm not stretching this too much, but I think that when David does this kind of thing, he is borrowing from the very heart of God. You see, God sees the brokenness and the pain and the tragedy that human beings go through. He does not like it. He cares for mankind, and he desires to help by sending messengers to preach a message of consolation to a broken and hurting world. Listen to some scriptures that declare to us the heart of God. And as I'm reading these to you, uh, you might want to write them down if you're that kind of person. And if you are, I love you. <laughs> and if you're not, I love you too. Uh, I've posted all these online for you. But as I'm reading these, and you, you know, if you want to write them down or not, that's fine. But I want you to just think about, okay, this is God's heart. Is it also my heart? Just ask that personally. Of course, one great verse that shows us the heart of God is John 3, verse 16. It's a very famous verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world, so he sent his son. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. This is God speaking. He says, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. So his heart for all the ends of the earth. That's a way of saying everybody. Turn to me and be saved. Ezekiel 18, verse 23. Have I any, this is God speaking. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God. What a, what a fascinating thing for God to say. Let me ask this question. Do you think that I enjoy the death of the wicked? That's what God is asking. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. This is God's heart, God's desire. He doesn't pleasure in the death of the wicked, in the necessity of bringing judgment. He would rather have human beings turn from their way and live. 
And of course, we understand that the way that happens is by hearing of Christ, receiving Christ, believing in him. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Paul writing to Timothy, listen to this. He said, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires, here's what God desires, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What does God desire? What does God want? What does God crave for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? It is his desire that human beings would know him and surrender submit their lives to him. And then 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, listen to this, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is God's desire for humanity, that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, this desire of God does not mean that there is no judgment from God. No, it's just that in the midst of the judgment of God, the eternal judgment of God, his preference is for human beings to hear the message of the gospel and turn and give their lives to Christ. This is the desire of the Lord. And here, David is sending these messengers to this man who'd experienced a catastrophe in his life to comfort this man. David's consolation mirrors the consolation of Christ in a couple of ways. David sent messengers, and Jesus has also sent messengers. You might be asking yourself, who, who are these messengers that you're talking about, Nate? You. I'm talking about you and me. We are the messengers that the Lord desires to send with a message of comfort and consolation from the gospel to this world. You might remember the episode where Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, you need to pray to the Lord of the harvest for laborers for the harvest. You know, that he would send out laborers into the harvest. The harvest is ripe. The harvest is plentiful. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And it's not lost on us as we read that account that they became the answer to their own prayers. They were the ones, as they prayed for that, Lord, would you, you know, send people to preach the message? As they prayed for that, they became the ones that the Lord would use to preach the message of the gospel. Do you know that? Do you know that the Lord has called us as believers to proclaim to the world that we're living in the life-giving message of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is like a good amen point for you guys to say amen to me. Because I'll just keep trying to convince you over and over again. Okay, but also, the reason I read the portion about Hanun's response is so that you could see that David's messengers were misunderstood. Because there are plenty of times, historically there will be plenty of times in the future where God's gospel preaching messengers will also be misunderstood. You know, these guys came into Ammonite territory. They said, hey, we've got this blessing from David. He wants to console you and comfort you. And all of Hanun's advisors said, they're not here to comfort you. They're here to spy out the city and to overthrow it for David. They were wrong in their assessment, but that's what they thought that David's men were there to do. And so many times when believers preach the gospel, 
there is a misunderstanding, a wrong assessment about what it is that we're trying to do. You know, our message, the message of the gospel, may be called a hate-filled message or an exclusive message. And there are certainly ways in which the gospel message is exclusive. You have to believe certain things to embrace the message, but it is inclusive for all in the sense that it is for anyone. Whoever believes can be saved. But when it is called a hate-filled message or an exclusive message, it, doesn't it feel to you, if you're a gospel believer today, like you have misunderstood what it is I'm saying. This is a loving message, the most loving message I know to preach, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You might remember in Acts chapter 17 when Paul went to Thessalonica, you know, Paul caused a ruckus in a lot of places. It wasn't Paul that caused it. It was the gospel that caused it. But in Thessalonica, it was kind of like a special uproar in Thessalonica. And that's saying something, given Paul's track record. But they were really upset in Thessalonica. They went looking for Paul. It was actually the other believers in the church that kind of grabbed Paul and his companions, and they're like, we are hiding you, because if we don't hide you, you're going to die. And they shipped him off to Berea. But the accusers, when they brought the believers who had remained in Thessalonica to the governing authorities, they say, these men who through their message have turned the world upside down. That's what they've done. They've turned the world upside down. As if everything was right, then they came in with this Jesus message and they messed everything up. That's so often the mentality that people have about believers and the message of the gospel that we're the problem, that everything would be right side up without gospel preaching, Bible believing, you know, Christians. But the reality is that the opposite thing was happening. The Lord looked at the world and said, it is upside down. And this gospel message can turn things right side up. It can restore what was broken and what was lost. All right, so, you know, here's David. He sends these messengers, and they were misunderstood. I wonder if we are willing and ready as we're sent into the world to be misunderstood as well. Now, David's message is exceeded by Christ's message because David didn't go. He only sent messengers, but Jesus came. He sent himself before he sends us. All right, now I got to move on to the next thing uh, for time's sake. So I want you to notice the response. We already read about it, what Hanun does. He listens to these advisors, verse 3. And in verse 4, he does this thing. It's very odd to us. He says that he shaved off half their beard uh, of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Hanun, uh, basically believing that David had terrible motives, humiliated David's messengers in two ways. The first way was he cut off half their beards. And probably the way we're supposed to think about this is not that they had long beards and he cut them this way, but that they had long beards and he cut, like shaved them like, like baby skin halfway. So half of their, they got like a half big beard and then just this fresh, clean skin on the other side. I mean, that's, a, that's like, I'm, I'm sure it's a look somewhere, but <laughs> it's not a good look. And you know, it would be embarrassing to us, but in that kind of culture, a shame honor culture, 
where beards for the men were signs of maturity, wisdom, leadership, godliness, like they should be today. <laughs> oh, just kidding. Uh, you know, in a culture like that, for a man to have half his beard shaved was a great embarrassment. Again, shame on our culture. But then, secondly, he does this other thing, and he cuts off their garments at the middle. In the ESV, it says, at the hips. I think in the New King James Version and a few other versions say, at the buttocks. It's a little more graphic. Kind of gives the idea that this was a forced indecency. And again, this would be embarrassing in most cultures, but in a culture like theirs, this is very embarrassing. These men come back into town, and you have to remember, notice what David does. They, they come back in, Jerusalem's here, Jericho's down here. They're coming from the east. They hit Jericho. David hears about it, and he says, stay in Jericho until your beards grow out. This, to me, is one of the more beautiful things about David's heart and manner in dealing with his followers and, and with his men because what he wants to do is he wants to cover the embarrassment and the shame of his servants. You know, he just says, just wait there. I know this is going to be terrible for you if you come back to Jerusalem. My men, you know, and people see your beard that way. You know, obviously someone gave them clothes, you know, at that point. It's not like they were waiting for their clothes to grow back too. Uh, someone gave them clothes, you know, but, but he's saying like, I don't want you to, I don't want you to have to experience that embarrassment. So I'm going to ask you to remain in Jericho. You know, this is interesting because it so reminds us of Christ. David gave them, or someone gave them, new clothes, obviously, and one of the ways that the Lord solves our shame, whether done to us or done by us, one of the ways that he solves our shame is to give us new clothes, the filthy rags of our unrighteousness replaced with the clean garments that come from Christ. And that includes not only filthy rags that we've made dirty ourselves, but that have been made dirty by others to us. But he also gave them distance, space, right? He made them stay in Jericho. He just, you, you know, people, I, you need to be separated for a period of time from you know, your families and other people so that you can grow, so that you can get strong again. And then he gave them time, time for their beards to be able to grow. Look, there are times that Jesus does the same exact thing for his people, where he gives, of course, the imputed righteousness of Christ, but also space and time that we might grow. I think of one of our great heroes of the faith, the Apostle Paul. You know, he considered himself a murderer of Christians because he, before he came to Christ, he was taking believers and throwing them in prison. Some of them were dying. He was consenting to their death. So although it's possible that he never literally himself with his own hands took a believer's life, he felt responsible for it. So he thought of himself as a murderer of believers. And when he be became a Christian, a lot of people were afraid of him. A lot of Christians were afraid of him. They thought that it was a false conversion, that he was just trying to trick people. They were terrified of him. 
And some good brothers reached out to him and, you know, brought him into the fold and everything. But there came a moment where the Lord sent him away back to his hometown of Tarsus. And for years, alone, with time and space, he just grew. Until one day, a man named Barnabas, who was serving God in, a, in Antioch, you know, things were just really happening in Antioch. Barnabas remembered Paul, and he went and sent for him and brought him into the work of the Lord. But there was a long period of time where, where just time and space, he just grew. He just was transformed. As I, as I thought about this this week, I was thinking about so many of our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ that are in the bridge home or have been in the bridge home in, in the past. And how, you know, you want to start walking with the Lord. You give your life to Christ. You start walking with him. But there are connections and relationships that you need time and space from in order to be able to kind of get on your feet spiritually. And, you know, sometimes even like the rules and restrictions and everything kind of, can kind of feel like, oh, man, this is harsh. I don't like this and everything. But it's helpful to get that time and that space so that the Lord can grow your life and heart. And then also, I think there's just something beautiful here about David being willing for that time to pass. We must give that kind of time to one another. It's interesting. We will usually give that kind of time to ourselves. You know, Lord, thank you for being so patient with me, just slowly working with me over the years. I know it's been decades that I've had the same thing <laughs> that you've been just by the Holy Spirit just rounding off you know in my life but I just so I'm so thankful for that patience you know Lord I'm like that rock in the river the water just keeps running over it and you're smoothing me down it's taken years but you know the Lord throws like another rock in the river next to us it's all jagged and everything and we're like hurry up you know you need to hurry up and get smoothed out by this water you know but we've got to be patient. Got to be patient. Here's another thing I want you to see. Do, let me ask you this. Do you think that these men, when David sent for them and told them, hey, stay in Jericho, do you think that they felt loved and cared for, protected by David? Yeah, absolutely. They, they would have felt at that point. I mean, they went away like liking David, but they came back and they're like, man, he really cares about us. And the reason I want to point that out to you is because the vehicle by which they had David's love delivered to them was their embarrassment and their shame. Listen, there are going to be things in your life, even in all your commitment to Jesus, and you're raising your hands and saying, you know, I surrender all, and I'm going to walk with you, and I'm going to, there's going to be things that you do that you're just embarrassed of. And in those moments, allow that to be the delivery mechanism of God's love and grace into your life. You know, I, I tell people sometimes being a pastor is like a, an exercise in just embarrassing yourself a lot. I mean, because you just say a lot of things, you do a lot of things, you know, and sometimes it's just like, why did I do that? You know, why did I say that? I remember early on when I first started as the lead pastor here one Sunday I, we were going through first John and I've I like I've, I thought I had this real clever illustration 
you know, about like, you know, aiming for Christ or something like that. And it involved like a urinal and, you know, just, it was, it just, it was just so bad. It was just so bad. Well, you know, obviously I've not been able to avoid since that time urinals, you know, they're out there, they're a thing for men. And quite frequently, I'm like, oh, remember that stupid illustration? <laughs> Why did I say that? You know, and just, and it gives me this little opportunity to afresh be like, Lord, I just am so thankful that you're gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. It's just another small little delivery mechanism for God's grace, God's love. So they were experiencing that. Okay, let's move on in the story. It says in verse 6, When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maacah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, you know, here's this coalition is forming the Ammonites or you know, the Ammonites realize that they have basically declared war in a shame honor culture like that. You can't do that kind of thing to these emissaries and expect that you haven't declared war. So they know they've declared war. So they start hiring all these armies. And so David heard of it, verse seven, and he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, so he sees, you know, I'm surrounded. He chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men, not the best of Israel, but the rest of the men, he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites because the Ammonites were the weaker of the two armies, the Syrians were stronger. And he said, verse 11, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, verse 12, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw, verse 14, that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. Okay, so this big, you know, battle takes place. <clears throat> the Ammonites realize they've made them, you like that phrase there, a stench to David. You know, they realize that, so they hire all these guys, the Syrians mostly, and they put together this coalition of forces, pay these guys to be mercenaries for them. This big army comes together. David hears of it, so he sends Joab to go fight them. And Joab, you know, looks around, he realizes, man, there's the Syrians, there's the Ammonites. So he takes some with himself, and he fights the Syrians. He takes his brother Abishai, and they go fight the Ammonite people. They split up. And he gives these directives, you know, at the beginning, and they go out, and God gives them this incredible victory. I wanted to just point out to you a few different things about David's servants. Uh, His warriors, 
in this moment, particularly Joab. There's something good about this man for all the negative about Joab in the life of David. There's something interesting or appealing about David's servants in this whole thing. First of all, I want you to see how strategic they were in this moment. You know, Joab took the best men to fight against the stronger army. Uh, the weaker men, not that they were weak, but they just weren't the stronger part of the army, uh, went with Abishai to fight the lesser army in the Ammonites. They had a whole system organized where if one was losing, they could notify the other and they would support one another. And so what I wanted to just point out to you is how strategic David's men were in battle. And the reason I wanted to point that out is because if we're kind of looking through David and seeing the son of David, Jesus Christ, and thinking about the way he operated and then the way his servants operate, I think it's good for us from time to time to recognize the strategy of Jesus that he then deposited into the church, into the body of Christ. I don't know what it is. I think maybe it's like because we live in an industrialized part of the world, we're in the West. There's something about the West that is attracted to the East, something about the industrialized world that feels all these like romantic things about the less industrialized parts of the world. And something about us kind of imports these things into Jesus that are more, I think, our imagination than reality. So what I mean by that is it seems like we like to imagine Jesus as this guy who had a Volkswagen bus, and he like lived in his bus. And he just, you know, would wake up in the morning, and he's like, someone's like, what are your plans today? And he's like, plans? <laughs> I got no plans. I'm just going to roll with it today, you know? And just like, he was just kind of cruising through Israel, just kind of like feeling it out, seeing what happened. But we forget that he was very strategic. First of all, you could say, in a sense, that the 66 books of God's word are a record of God's detailed strategy as to how to overturn the corruption brought into the world by the sin of the world. I mean, it's very elaborate. From the foundation of the world, Christ was slain. It was a detailed plan put in place. But when Jesus, you know, came on the scene, you know, he chose very specific disciples that would follow after him. He organized the group. He had 12. And in the 12, he had three groups of four. He had a group of three that he spent the most time with. And he had one in Peter that he spent the most time with in that group of three. He had a larger group of 70 or 72 disciples. He had a larger group than that of followers. He had a female contingent of followers who were support staff in the work of the Lord. He had financiers as they went around, you know, kind of helping to pay for different meals and stuff like that. And he had a strategy with the circuit that he would, if you look at the map and, and see where Jesus went in preaching and in teaching, it was very strategic. He wouldn't just stay in one spot. He intentionally only went to Jerusalem at certain times so as not to 
bring about the events of the cross before their time. Uh, He was very strategic in the way that he did things. And when he died and ascended to the right hand of the Father, the disciples went out, the 12, they uh, began to ordain pastors and began to ordain deacons, and they met in the church and from house to house. There was uh, more organization than sometimes we give credit for. And uh, just the strategy of the Lord. So it reminds us that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 that we must be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So there is, you know, the strategy involved. Quickly, though, we also see with Joab and his brother Abishai that they were willing to help one another. I mean, I'll just say it like this. It's a basic point, but we should be willing to help one another. Amen? You know, in the fight and in the battle, there are times where we just need to aid another believer. I like in the life of Nehemiah, when he was rebuilding Jerusalem, he knew that they would be attacked in that rebuilding effort, so he gave everybody trumpets. He said, look, if you get attacked, blow your trumpet, and we'll come to the sound of the trumpet, you know, knowing that you're under attack. This is what we need in the body of Christ, you know, working together, willing to help one another as we're blowing our trumpets, saying, help me. They were also courageous. Did you see that there in verse 12? Or at least Joab told his brother Abishai to be courageous. You see it? He says, be of good courage. Let us be courageous. Now, let me ask you, have you ever heard somebody say that to you and you've just thought to yourself, that is of no real help at all? (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm fearful for a reason, calculated reason. I've thought it out. Here's the reason I'm afraid. And someone says, be courageous. Be of good courage. You know, there, there is a sense in which, or a spirit in which, when a person receives that exhortation to be courageous, it is not helpful. But there's another spirit, the kind of spirit that Joshua had when Moses and then later the Lord directly spoke to him before he went into the promised land and said, be of good courage. Be courageous. It's like, in the exhortation is the power. Look, we should not feel foolish to say this to one another at times. Be courageous. Be bold. Be fearless. Because there are times when our heart is right that that really actually is exactly the word that we need. It might not be be courageous and here's the reason or here's all your fears, I'll delete them and then tell you to be courageous. It's just basically get your eyes upon the Lord and be courageous. That's what he spoke to his brother. Notice also that Abishai and Joab in verse 12 were responsible for other people. They said, we're going to do this for our people and for the cities of our God, verse 12. They were responsible for other people. This is what fuels so much of the mission mentality of the body of Christ, or has fueled the mission mentality of the body of Christ for thousands of years now. A responsibility for people and people groups that we have no other affiliation or connection to or with. To say, they deserve an opportunity like I had to hear the message of the gospel. I imagine those first missionaries, like in Acts chapter 13, when they were in Antioch and the elders were gathering together, they're praying, they're praying, they're praying and fasting, ministering to the Lord. And what were they doing? They they were waiting. God, 
where do we get to go? Where do we get to go? I, I imagine them like the horses in the stall go, ready to launch into the Kentucky Derby at the start of the gun. They're just waiting, like, give us our direction. And when the Holy Spirit finally said to that group, separate to me Barnabas and Paul for the work to which I've called them, it was like, yes, amen, we're going. And they had a plan. I mean, they first place they went was to the island of Cyprus, happened to be where Barnabas was from. It's like they're in prayer, and Barnabas is like, man, if I get to go, if I get to go, if I get to go, hometown, I'm going. You know, and they, they had this plan, this desire, this longing. But why? Because they felt a responsibility for other human beings, a desire for others to know the Lord. And finally, verse 12, Joab said, may the Lord do what seems good to him. They just trusted in the sovereignty of God. That'll get you through a lot of things in life if you can trust and believe in the sovereignty of the Lord. All right, now let's read the concluding uh, paragraph together. It says in verse 15, you know, after this victory that Joab and Abishai won for David, it says, but when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezer, remember this guy? We saw him last week. He's one of the Syrian kings. He rises up again. It says, Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings, verse 19, were servant, uh, who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. This whole episode you know, we read of it. How does it all start? Well, it starts with David kindly, gently, lovingly sending messengers to the Ammonites saying, hey, just want to love on you. Heard that your father died, Hanun. Just want to comfort you. If there's anything we could do, we'd like to keep this peace between our nations going. That's how the story starts. It ends with just, they all lose to David. They all lose to David. And look, there's something about that that has to remind us of the first and second coming of Christ. You know, in his first coming, he came with gentleness and with kindness. Whoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. But a day is coming where Jesus Christ will return. I'm going to close this teaching by reading to you a passage out of 2 Peter chapter 3, and I want to ask you to turn there in your Bibles with me. 2 Peter chapter 3, and I just want to read to you verse 1 through 13, just so we can kind of, I realize this is a sober kind of idea that Christ is going to, that something that we're in awe of about him is that not only did he come in peace and in love and in gentleness, but he will also come again, and when he comes again, he will come in power. He will tread the winepress of the wrath of God. The Bible teaches this. And I realize it's a sobering concept, so I want to read this to you from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 13. 
This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they, verse 5, deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to, this, to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Listen, sometimes we read of God judging a people group in the Old Testament era, and we have to explain it, think about it, how did that work? Sometimes in doing so, we forget that a day is coming where God is going to, through the second coming of Christ, judge all peoples. All people. That's what we just read of in that passage. We should be in awe of the first coming of Christ, but also respectfully in awe of the second coming of Christ as well. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about Calvary Monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.